Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Brother Jason, welcome to the tribute episode for Mark Lanigan. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, but on these terms, it's kind of a sad moment. Yeah, it is. We're saying goodbye to a man that neither of us knew, Mark Lanigan. Right. But he is a Pacific Northwest indie rock icon, probably an international icon. He was huge in Europe uh, over the last decade, but really a musician's musician played with so many different artists, got his start right in our neck of the woods in Ellensburg, Washington in the mid-80s, mm-hmm. and formed the Screaming Trees with former guest Mark Pickerel, and went on to become one of the most iconic indie rockers of the history of the Pacific Northwest. I don't think that's overstating the case about Mark Lanigan. No. I tried to interview Mark several times by trying to track this guy down and emailing his people, but just finding his people and his reps was difficult. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure that his website had a way to email his reps. But I did send an official email to someone asking to interview Mark a couple of years ago. And of course, that never um, went anywhere and we never got to chat with him. Right. But we did talk to some folks who worked with Mark Lanigan, most notably Moby, Mark Pickerel, and Jeff Fielder. Yes. And I think what we're planning to do in this episode is to excerpt the portions of those interviews where Mark Lanigan was discussed mm-hmm. and use that as a tribute to Mark so the audience can get to know him a little bit through those conversations. Right. And before we get started, Jason, I'll point out that Mark Marin of the WTF podcast, one of my favorite podcasters of all time, he interviewed Mark Lanigan in 2017, as you know, mm-hmm. and just pulled that interview out from underneath the paywall and as a tribute to Mark, made that available for free on the WTF website and on the WTF app. So wherever you get your podcasts, you can go listen to that interview with Mark Lanigan and get a sense of what he was like, at least back in 2017, what was going on in his life. And you also get a nice little history lesson about music in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And uh, he's got a pretty interesting life, and he's a a dark soul, complicated guy from what I understand, Mm -hmm. but a, a pretty amazing artist. Yeah, I saw the interview too, and I think I was telling you he seemed like a kind of a lost, tortured soul in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that, you know, over the years, uh, he's dealt with alcoholism and uh, addiction, but was sober, had gotten sober. And so, you know, it just kind of really, it came as a shock to me 
that uh, somebody like Mark Lanigan at age 57 would pass so so quickly and so soon. You know, I, I've known a Mark Lanigan. He's been in my consciousness 30 to 35 years or so, probably you too. And uh, it's, he's basically a, a legend in this neck of the woods, being just 30 miles north of us in Ellensburg. He really was a staple, a really important part of kind of the evolution of Northwest music and what became grunge. And so everybody around here that knows him, uh, of course, we're very fond of the Screaming Trees and uh, a lot of his solo work. But, you know, to me, Mark Lanigan has always seemed like kind of a, there's a darkness there, mm-hmm. kind of a Jim Morrison-esque vibe. And totally. very quiet, very quiet and kind of, it kind of, kind of stays back in the dark a little bit. There's some pain in there. Yeah, my first introduction to the Screaming Trees was actually a little later in his career. I know he started in the mid-80s or so with Screaming Trees, Mm -hmm. but I first found out about him when I was working at a record store in like 1990, 91-ish when Uncle Anesthesia came out. Oh, yeah. And of course, Mark Pickerel, our former guest and friend, was uh, playing drums on that album. Mm -hmm. That was one of his last albums with the Screaming Trees. Yeah, it was, yeah. But I remember walking into the record store and uh, and hearing the title track from that album. And I was like, who is this? And you're right, in terms of the fabric of the grunge scene, they were part of that quilt, so to speak. And a big, big part of the Pacific Northwest grunge movement. And it started right here in you know, in Ellensburg, which is just right. right down the road from us. Yeah. So to be in Yakima and to be that close to folks that were so influential is pretty special. Mm-hmm. Mark Lanigan was reintroduced to me much later in life when I watched Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations or one of his travel shows. Yeah. And Mark, of course, wrote and performed the intro music for that show. I took a walk through this beautiful world Felt the cool rain on my shoulder Found something good in this beautiful world I felt the rain getting So just out of curiosity, Brian, what's your favorite Screaming Tree song? One that really sticks with me when I think about the Screaming Trees, it kind of captures the essence of the Screaming Trees for me, mm-hmm. is the title track from Uncle Anesthesia. And the reason for that is that memory of walking into my shift at the record store and hearing that song for the first time. And it was kind of a shift. It was a bit of a portal into that world of grunge music. And of course, I'd been listening to Alice in Chains and Mother Love Bone and mm-hmm. a lot of the other, you know, Mud Honey and the other Pacific Northwest bands, the Melvins, which is much earlier than that. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, because this was an Ellensburg band and we were in Yakima, it was more special to me and it resonated more with me. So that's my answer, Uncle Anesthesia. Yeah. 
How about you, Jason? Do you have a favorite Screaming Trees track? I do. And it's, it's the hits. You know, I like the, the stuff that came out on Sweet Oblivion. So my favorite song is Nearly Lost You. That's a great song. And, you know, I was, I was aware of the first time I ever heard the Screaming Trees was Uncle Anesthesia as well. I know they'd done albums before that and stuff, but this was like the first one that was kind of a major label uh, deal. And so I heard it because I worked at the radio station. Right. And at, by then, I mean, I was already aware of Alice in Chains, like you said, Alice in Chains. I had heard Bleach from Nirvana. I had heard some Soundgarden. I think it was Loud Love. And so I was just getting into it. And then the Screaming Trees, when they put out Sweet Oblivion in 92, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. I mean, Mark Lanigan's voice, holy crap. Yeah, his voice was so singular, so unique. And you brought up that reference to Jim Morrison. I think mm. that's the closest comparison I can think of in terms of how to describe Mark's voice. Mm -hmm. So deep, so dark. But it's not Jim Morrison. It's no. his own brand of darkness. And he was so sought after. That's the remarkable thing. And going back and looking at his, his discography and looking at the number of bands that he played with, Queens of Stone Age, mm. Isabel Campbell, right? the collaboration that he did with so many different bands because people wanted that type of vibe. They wanted that type of darkness that only Mark could provide. And as we'll hear in these clips, starting with Moby, uh, these artists were seeking Mark out. He had no shortage of work in his lifetime. Nope. And I'm sure he had to turn down all kinds of projects. But the musicians that were wanting to work with him, they were the ones reaching out to him. So why don't we get started by jumping right into my chat with Moby, where Mark Lanigan is discussed. I'd like to talk to you about the lonely night with Mark Lanigan and Chris Christofferson. And I think that was originally recorded with Mark back in 2013, but then you brought in Chris on reprise. Tell me about your, your thought process on who you were going to bring in to record that song and what your instructions were, if any, to Mark and Chris when they were recording. So I had known Mark, not known him personally, but I'd known of him when he was on SST with the Screaming Trees. And then his voice, I mean, I'm stating the obvious for anyone who's ever heard Mark Lanigan sing. It's like, he just has that voice, you know, like it's a one, not just a one in a million voice, it's a one in a billion voice. So I met him about 10 years ago. And when I first met him, I was terrified because, you know, he's got this dark voice in public. He never smiles. Uh, and I saw him <laughs> perform and he was kind of intimidating, but I'm so mercenary when it comes to pursuing voices that I found myself backstage and I approached him and I asked if he'd ever want to work on music together. And my assumption was that he would either stab me or ignore me. <laughs> and instead, he was delightful. Like he, I, I was living in Hollywood. He was living in Glendale. We're both in 12-step programs. And we started working on music together. And I just, he was, and I'm not just being nice, but like he was really creatively both inspired and phenomenally hardworking. You know, like he has this work ethic where when we recorded The Lonely Night the first time, 
he came to my studio and we recorded it once and it was perfect because he had done all the work at home in his studio beforehand. And then it obviously was a very obscure song. You know, it was an obscure song on an obscure album, but I really have always loved it. And I wanted to revisit it for this album for reprise and to hear what it would be sound, what it would sound like played with an orchestra. And I wanted another voice of experience on it because as time has passed, I've really lost interest in anodyne voices or overly professional voices or even really young voices. You know, I want voices that reflect the human condition, that reflect an individual's experience. And so Chris Christofferson was one of the, I mean, I just immediately thought like, who has a voice of experience? And I thought of Chris Christofferson and I reached out to him, assuming he would say no. And 30 seconds after emailing him, he basically wrote back and said, yeah, it sounds great. I'd love to do it. With a graveyard stare, graveyard stare, and one leaf clover, just the one leaf clover. Here come the lonely night. I can't escape my mind. Both of those voices are definitely voices of experience and the type of experience that you project on them, whether this is true or not. But it's like both voices have seen some shit in their life. I mean, they have seen some things and been through a lot. I know Mark struggled with addiction early in his career and came through the other side, thank goodness. And I'm not sure about Chris's history, but both of those voices just, ah, it's so raw. It reminded me a little bit of Johnny Cash's last album, produced by Rick Rubin, I believe. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, the reference, absolutely. You know, Johnny Cash's version of Hurt is definitely, as far as a benchmark of a voice of experience representing the human condition through a song, like Johnny Cash's Hurt is sort of like the nay plus ultra of that. Yeah, or, or for example, like Leonard Cohen's later work, when his voice had gotten to that place as well of just like that gravitas. And I don't think Leonard Cohen was a bottomed out addict the way I am, the way Mark Lanigan, Chris Christopherson, and Johnny Cash were. But like, as we're saying, like, I just, I've so much, I've come to appreciate adult voices where there's just the complexity and the humility. You know, it's really hard to be arrogant if you're, me or Mark Lanigan or Chris Christopherson, who have been so completely comprehensively bottomed out as addicts, that kind of knocks the arrogance out of you. It makes me think a little bit of, and this is a very odd analogy, but do you remember a Simpsons episode where Bart Simpson sells his soul? I don't. Okay. So there's an episode, Bart sells his soul to Millhouse, And as a result, he has no soul. And so suddenly like the animals in his house won't interact with them. He tries to pet the cat. And the cat runs away from him and he says to the cat, like, well, you're pretty picky for someone who eats bugs. <laughs> and I sort of feel that way about bottoming out about addiction with addiction, where like, where no matter what happens, the bottomed out addict can't take refuge in arrogance because they remember the degradations of how they bottomed out. Right. You know, and that might be sort of where like some of the, the humility in the voices of, you know, Mark Lanigan and Chris Christopherson in that song, where that comes from. What a testament to Mark's singular talent that someone like Moby, who did not know Mark, had no relationship with him, right. would seek him out despite being so intimidated mm -hmm. by his presence and by his vibe. 
and would want him to sing The Lonely Night on his album Reprise yeah. with none other than Chris Christofferson. What an honor that must have been. But after listening to Mark's interview with Mark Marin on WTF, mm-hmm. it is so obvious that Mark Lanigan does not really get a lot from these experiences that is ego-driven. Yeah, I think this is a guy that is driven to create and to perform and to collaborate. But you can tell with Mark Marin's compliments toward Mark Lanigan that Lanigan was pretty uncomfortable with praise. Yeah. And that is a special type of personality to see in the music world. Someone who's doing it for the pure experience of creating, as opposed to praise and fame and riches. This is a guy that could have had a lot more than he did in life, mm-hmm. in my opinion, uh, professionally and career-wise or you know, money-wise, but he chose a path of staying true to his vision, which was making good music with friends and fellow creatives. And I think that's what attracted Moby to Mark, not just his voice, but also his spirit. I agree. You know, I liked what Moby had to say about Mark and how he felt intimidated and thought that he was either going to stab him or (laughs) something like that, where you could tell, you know, he uh, was kind of like, I don't know if I should do this. But, you know, I've seen interviews with Mark Lanigan, and he did seem like someone you might think twice about approaching. But once you did approach him and maybe introduce yourself and start a conversation with, you know, he warmed up to you. Right. And was really, really kind of this cool guy. But I just think he really didn't like doing interviews, and I think he felt uncomfortable opening up. And you can tell that with the Mark Marin interview. Totally. And that's why the interview was a lot shorter than most of Mark Marin's interviews. Mm-hmm. I think this was like 40 minutes long or certainly less than an hour, which is unusual for Mark Marin. Yeah. But when you listen to the questions and the answers, there isn't a lot of banter back and forth. It's just Mark Marin making a comment or making a point or asking a question. And Mark Lanigan laughing nervously, answering the question, not being evasive, right? but not really being helpful to move that conversation forward. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Count the miles before they pass you by. So the next guest that uh, talked about Mark Lanigan knew him really well back in the 80s, mm-hmm. and that is Mark Pickerel from The Screaming Trees. And that's how Mark Lanigan got his start in music as a lead singer. Let's listen to Mark Pickerel talk about the origin story of how that came together. I've heard interviews with Mark Lanigan where he talks about Ellensburg and most of the people that interview Mark don't know where Ellensburg is. And and I I think most people in general don't know where Ellensburg is because it's such a small town out in the middle of nowhere. But I wasn't able to get a sense with the interviews with Mark, whether he thought Ellensburg, like like he became who he was because of Ellensburg or Mm -hmm. in spite of of Ellensburg. And I want to ask that question. Probably a little of both. And, you know, for many years, we were actually kind of resentful of Ellensburg's indifference 
towards us. The only time we could play a show here in Ellensburg is if we is if we rented a community center, which I might add is just a, a block away from here. If we rented a space, you know, we could put on our own show, but no one wanted to book us. No one invited us to play. We weren't welcome to play in any bars around here or any any place like that. So we did resent that and that it took our appearance on MTV for people, the Ellensburg community to start taking pride in, in us, you know, was a little too little too late. On the other hand, there was there were people here who supported us and helped facilitate the the groundwork or the the uh, a place for us to to develop our own sound and to develop a kind of a career strategy. That Steve Fisk had moved back here around the time that we started flirting with doing some home recordings and that kind of stuff. Steve Fisk, who who later produced our first records and Nirvana's records and Mud Honey and and worked with Soundgarden and many other artists, um, car seat headrest uh, recently. Anyway, there were people like Steve and some people in the, within the community that, that did kind of offer us some mentoring. And, and so there were people here that did uh, encourage us and who really appreciated us. But on a whole, we were up against right. a lot of indifference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's almost like in spite of yeah. the barriers that were here. Absolutely. In fact, one of our first songs was called Stand Against Barriers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and yeah, you started in your freshman year of high school with that band? Yeah, originally Van and Lee, the Connor brothers on guitar and bass, and I started a, a group called Him and Those Guys. And um, it was most of our set just consisted of covers of everyone from the Sex Pistols to the Rolling Stones and Cream and the Psychedelic Furs. It was basically just a cool cover band. Yeah. And then Lee started writing his own his own songs around the time I was a junior in high school and that's when we started and that's when we re- recruited Lanigan to sing and uh, the rest is history. Yeah. So why Lanigan? Like what did you see in him that you thought he would be a good fit? Well, interestingly enough, so I'd already been, like I said, I'd been playing drums for the trees for a couple of years and Van Connor, our bass player and Mark shared, um, they sat next to each other in a journalism class and discovered each other's mutual, um, fandom of like Motorhead and Black Flag and, you know, Sex Pistols, The Stranglers. So Mark had apparently just acquired a drum set through um, a drug deal gone bad. And some guy couldn't pay him for some drugs he was supposed to have purchased. <laughs> and so the guy gave him a drum kit. And so Mark mentioned this to Van that, hey, I'm, you know, I, I play drums, you know, we, we should start something. So we decided that I would sing and Mark would play drums and we all got together and it became evident immediately that he didn't really know what he was doing behind the drums. And I, I could carry a tune, but I didn't. My, I hadn't really developed any personality as a vocalist at that point. So we switched roles and just to, you know, to see whether or not he could sing. And we, we knew I could play drums. And we launched into a version, a really fast version that we'd already been fooling around with. Um, before Mark joined, we, we were fooling around with this really fast version of The End by The Doors. Mm. Um, like a really fast, like urgent version of it. Yeah. and Super um, slow song originally. Right, right. Yeah. This is the end, my only friend. Well, we picked up the tempo to the, this is the end, da, 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 my only friend, the end. You know? Nice. And uh, so we just sort of coached Mark on like how we had reinvented this song. Sorry if I got a little... A little loud there. <laughs> coming in hot. Coming in hot. <laughs> anyway, it was clear to us that, you know, that Mark would Mark would have to sing from then on and like that we had our own Jim Morrison and um, 
we immediately started making demos and and played those demos for Steve Fisk and uh, he suggested that we book studio time immediately and you know we started started recording yeah during my junior year and mm-hmm. I think that first release Other Worlds came out at the beginning of my senior year so yeah but yeah we finished two records by the time I graduated that's incredible yeah yeah and and what a an organic way for a band to come together where you you think it's going to be a certain way and this person's going to be playing drums, other person's going to be on vocals. And then you just find yeah, like, you know what? That's not, let's tweak it a little bit. Right. Cause originally van, our bass player had originally been the singer, but yeah, just that, that particular day, the, you know, the, the planets lined up and that was the first day of the screaming trees. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the evolution of that sound, which I think in, in my opinion, clairvoyance sounds like a first album i mean you know it's it's got the well the production value obviously is not going to be as great as uncle anesthesia but i mean there's just so much maturity that happens from the mid 80s through the early 90s and i love that evolution Mm -hmm. what was the impetus behind your leaving the band in 91 after i mean this is an incredible album Uncle anesthesia well thank you and i was really proud of of what we were accomplishing artistically I couldn't have been prouder and I knew that we were actually on top of our game at the time and that I was that I was walking away just on the cusp of you know potential worldwide recognition but I was also kind of exhausted I was kind of the diplomat in the band or the, the most kind of diplomatic member of the group always trying to be the peacekeeper and that was a very difficult task with um especially the dynamic between Gary Lee the guitarist and Lanigan was just exhausting Mm -hmm. um there was just there there was a lot of rivalry between the two of them and um a lot of competitiveness and and um was gary lee using at the time too no not at all no so actually mark wasn't either you know mark a couple years earlier just actually right right after the screaming trees formed about a year after we formed mark his leg got ran over by a big p-vine combine Hmm. and um if that's what they're called that's a very ellensburg injury Yeah. (laughs) yeah he was out working uh, the crops uh, on the other side of the Columbia River and ended up almost losing his leg hmm. uh, in this accident. And um, the doctors, while examining him and, and trying to mend him back to health, happened to stumble upon his liver. And, um, you know, or, or they, they discovered that his, that his drinking had become a real danger mm-hmm. and advised that if he wanted to live, you know, to see 30, that he would, he would need to stop drinking. So he went, he stopped drinking and for like the next five to seven years, he was, he, you know, went cold turkey and wasn't drinking, but he was a very dry drunk. He was very unhappy mm-hmm. recovering alcoholic. And so that was part of what created this dynamic that was really uh, intense. And me being the peacekeeper, uh, it just like kind of kept me awake at night, you know, trying yeah. to figure out how to negotiate a, a peaceful existence mm-hmm. uh, within the group was just became too much for me. So... Tell us about Nirvana, because you had the privilege of playing mm-hmm. on a couple of tracks that made it to the box set. Right. What happened there? How did that come about? Yeah. So, I believe Mark especially became pretty close with Kurt, and Kurt was a huge Screaming Trees fan, and at some point, they both stumbled upon their mutual admiration of uh, and fascination with Lead Belly, the uh, iconic folk blues. How do you lead better? Is it? Yeah. 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 And um, th- I think they decided that wouldn't it, wouldn't it be cool to just record a bunch of Lead Belly songs 
and Mark knew I was a Lead Belly fan, and and so he asked me if I would want to you know participate in this little side project that we, for at least for a, a brief period of time, we were we were referring to as the, ju- the jury. Anyway, I saw Kurt and Chris from Nirvana and Lanigan and I from the trees. Uh, we asked, we approached Sub Pop and asked them if they would want to put out a, you know, a, an EP, a five song EP or something like that, just to get started. And of course, they jumped at the chance. Two of their favorite Sub Pop artists collaborating. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we rehearsed a couple times and um, booked booked a session with Jack and Dino, who we all worked with previously. And uh, yeah, just did our best to try and reinvent uh, or repurpose these Lead Belly songs. Mm-hmm. That One of which, um, Where Did You Sleep Last Night? You know, Six months or maybe a year or two later, Kurt re-recorded with Nirvana on the MTV, MTV Unplugged session. And so that, that brought a lot of attention to the original recording that actually ended up on Lanigan's first solo record because we scrapped, we scrapped the project for a while. We shelved it. But Mark asked Kurt and Chris if we could use his version of Where Did You Sleep Last Night on his first solo record since we weren't going to release anything under the name The Jury. And then, like 10 years later, Universal or Geffen or Universal contacted me and told me that Chris and Dave Grohl had decided that they'd like to use the two remaining tracks from that session and include them in a Nirvana box set. So nice. I was thrilled. Ain't, yeah. it, ain't it a shame and speeds up? Is that? Uh, the, uh, it's called Ain't It a Shame and um, Grey Goose. Oh, Grey Goose. Yeah, okay. Yeah. What were, I mean, this was like post Bleach, but pre Nevermind. Yeah, exactly. What were you thinking at the time when you were working on the project? Were you, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I don't know if I was recording when we were talking about it, but we were talking about being in the moment, Mm -hmm. flow, and I'd like to ask you what it was like to work with Nirvana post-Bleach, but pre-Nevermind. Speaking about flow and everything, that particular lineup was really easy to play with and, and playing with Kurt and Chris and Lanigan was pretty effortless. It didn't really, really re- require a lot of effort on my part. Something about the way um, the chemistry of Kurt and Chris the, that they brought to the, the mix um, and all that talent. I mean, it, you know, whether it's Lanigan or, or um, Kurt singing, there's just so much command in what they do that everything else just sort of falls into place. And like the way Kurt plays guitar with a lot of confidence and a lot of purpose. Mm-hmm. He's a very efficient guitar player, so he's like he plays exactly what he needs to to get a point across mm-hmm. or to get a melody across. And for a drummer, that's a real blessing. You don't have to work nearly as hard when everyone else knows what they're doing. And you know, mm-hmm. what were your thoughts about Kurt and also Mark too? Because Kurt and Mark to me seem like you know extremely talented people, but both flying too close to the sun. Absolutely, basically, yeah. Yeah, and like I said, this was before Mark started using again. And actually, it was before Kurt. It was certainly, when I was playing with him, it was certainly before I was aware of any um, drug use, at least on that level or to that degree. So, I wasn't really concerned about it. 
one thing I can remember distinctly about that session, it was funny to me because Mark had always taken such an aggressive role in the Screaming Trees artistically and in, in every other way, every other aspect. But in that setting, he was kind of a wallflower and Kurt was also not very assertive throughout the session because I think there was so much mutual admiration for each other's talents that they both sort of continually offered each other, you know, the opportunity to, mm-hmm. to you know, to, to sing a song or right. to, 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 to bring their personality to it or whatever. So it was kind of funny. I've described it oftentimes as sort of like watching two wallflowers at, you know, on opposite ends of the dance floor, you know, kind of sizing each other up and figuring out who's going to make the, the first move and, you know. Um, Both members of the Mutual Admiration yeah, Society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was interesting for me to see Mark in a different role for the first time in my life and probably really the only time I've ever seen him kind of take a backseat to someone else's talents. But yeah, I was really sad when um, I saw both of them head down that path. And uh, it was actually one of the things that led me to start writing my own music was that as a drummer, it became more and more evident to me that I was always going to be in this submissive role artistically and professionally. And that if I ever wanted to really maintain any kind of um, stability with my career, I would have to start writing Mm -hmm. and singing. And so it really came not so much out of a desire to express myself, but really as out of a desire to enjoy some stability. Mm-hmm. My takeaway from this chat with Mark Pickerel about Lanigan was that Lanigan was a complicated guy. Mm-hmm. And we've heard that from multiple people, that uh, he was full of contradictions and was complicated. And, and I think those are just words to describe somebody who is not really definable and maybe is not easily knowable because there's so much darkness there. I think a lot of that darkness comes from the addiction that he struggled with for many years. Absolutely. Well, basically his entire life. I mean, he for real struggled with heroin addiction and alcohol, and he was clean and sober for quite a number of years. And at the time of the interview with Mark Marin, was clean and sober. Yep. But he was working the program. He was probably still taking it day by day, as a lot of addicts do. One day at a time. Yeah, and and who knows what kind of damage was done as a result of those years of addiction and how that led to his death at age 57. We really don't know how he died, why he died. We do know that he had COVID-19 and almost died of COVID last year yeah, uh, or the year before and then wrote a memoir about it called Devil in a Coma. Yeah. He has a a previous memoir called Sing Backwards and Weep from 2020. Right. Uh, I need to read those books. I am fascinated now by this character. I'm going to check those books out from the library and see if I can read them this summer. But what what a special guy. And, and wh- how cool is it that we got to talk to folks that really knew Mark well and were able to share stories about him that gives us a peek into who Mark Lanigan was? Yeah. Yeah. And Mark Pickerel, I mean, when we did the interview, you know, you have Mark Pickerel and, and his praying hands, right? That was one of the bands he was in. Right. Where he fronts the band he plays guitar and he sings but going back to the screaming trees mark pickerel was a beast on those fucking drums man totally i mean the early tree stuff up to uncle anesthesia is so raw and sometimes you know pretty trippy stuff i really liked hearing mark pickerel's point of view because he is someone who knew mark lanigan from an early age he was there in the trenches during the formation and the build-up of the band the screaming trees and stayed there right up until the first you know until they first got signed. So 
Hearing his story is an even deeper insight into who Mark Lanigan was as a person and as an artist. Man, well said, Jason. Well said. That's true. To you, Jane, a torn and tattered love. Do you hear the tolling bells that ring down from above? Thought I'd rule like Charlemagne, but I've become corrupt. Now I call the promenade. So the last guest that we're going to feature is Jeff Fielder. Hmm. And this one is really special to me because Jeff actually toured with Mark Lanigan, I think for 12 years. Right. Yeah. So he was his touring guitarist and was traveling the globe with this guy for years and years. And the tributes that I've seen from Jeff Fielder on Facebook and social media about Mark and the photos that he shared and the stories that he shared, mm-hmm. you can tell that this loss really hit Jeff in a big way. Yeah. You know, Jeff, I, I, I kind of regret not going in a little deeper in hindsight on his relationship with Mark Lanigan and uh, exploring that more. But of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I didn't know at the time that mm. Lanigan's time on this earth would be so short. But let's listen to that chat. And that's when I met Stone and Mike, you know, and Stone in particular, me and him like just hit it off. I don't know what it was, but like we'd work together now, you know, mm-hmm. it's all, and that all stems from that particular thing, that Pike Place Market thing. Uh, and then Lanigan, that's a whole other long story, but it's a totally roundabout thing. It has nothing to do with Seattle. It comes out of is meeting Isabel Campbell and she's from Scotland. And I met her first through another guy. And then, that, you know, I could tell you all about that too, but maybe we should <laughs> get there. But the, you know what I mean? So that was a different avenue, you know? Yeah, right. And so Isabel, what is her connection to the Pacific Northwest? And, and forgive my ignorance if I should know this, but from Scotland. So do you know who I'm talking about? No. Do you know who Isabel Campbell is? No. Okay. So uh, her and Mark Lanigan made three records together Okay. in the 2000s. And they're excellent. She uh, was originally in a band called Bell and Sebastian, and uh, they're Scottish. And then she went off and did some solo stuff. And she wanted to have this foil, you know, to her. She has a very sweet, very soft voice, Mm. you know, and she wanted kind of her Lee Hazelwood to her, you know, Nancy Sinatra. And her boyfriend at the time, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, this is the story, suggested Mark Lanigan, and she had never heard of him. But she listened to the, some of the stuff, which was all kind of rock-oriented at the time. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, this, his voice is amazing, so it'd be great. So she just contacted him, and then they ended up making these records together. And I, she would send the stuff to Mark in the United States. She would be in Scotland. She's got her band in Scotland. And then they would just do the thing remotely. He would send back the, the tracks, right? And so eventually, she wanted to meet some American musicians and just be kind of more... She would just like that whole Americana vibe, you know? And... After the second record leading into the third record, she had gone to Memphis to this thing called the Folk Alliance, which is a music conference where people play in the sort of takeover hotels, whatever. Uh, And she went to that to meet people, and she ended up meeting Calexico and Victoria Williams, which was really cool. Mm. This kind of Tucson, Arizona kind of section of people, you know, musicians from there. Mm -hmm. Nico Case is out there and all that stuff. And uh, she ended up meeting my friend Phil Hurley, 
who was out there playing with his band and he's a wicked guitar player. So she was looking for a guitar player and she's like, Hey, would you be kind, you know, would you be keen to play in with me? <laughs> I love it. I play in a, I'll play in a band with Mark Lanigan. Maybe you would like to play our guitarist for the American league of the tour. <laughs> well done. And he didn't, like he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. And we were friends. So he just gave her my phone number What? and that was it. And then he told me, and I was fully aware I had the, I had the first record. Which I was just like, no way. And at this point in my life and career, I was just over it. It was not going well. And I'd just been plugging away forever and not getting anywhere. And I was just kind of lost. And so it was pretty good timing. And so a month and a half later, she called me from Scotland. And it sounded like, you know what I mean? It was so <laughs> weird. And we just talked. And we, she flew to America. And I met her in Tucson, Arizona. And I, we did a recording with Calexico. And it was wild because that was the first time I'd really done anything sort of, you know, outside of my own circles, you know, as far as that. Mm -hmm. And then one thing led to another. We made the third record together with Mark. And that's when we met. That's when okay. I met Lanigan for the first time. Was it in, in LA recording the record that became Hawk, which was the, th the third of the three uh, Mark Lanigan and Isabel Campbell records. And I had kind of a, you know, quite a bit to do with that, actually, as far as like kind of arrangements and you know, nice all of that business. And then I ended up in the touring band, blah, blah, blah. I got to know Mark and he invited me to join him. And there you go. Well, Mark's, that's an interesting word, foil, because Mark, his, his style and what he brings to a performance is so singular, so unique. I interviewed Moby a couple of months ago right? Yeah, about his new album, Reprise, and Mark performs with Chris Christofferson on one of their tracks. Mm -hmm. And I, for, I forget the name of the track, but it is like so gravelly and so dark. Yeah. That's some serious weight right there. Yeah. It is. It is. It's just really heavy. So in terms of touring with Lanigan, mm -hmm. tell us what that looks like. Because I don't know a lot about touring musicians in terms of the business relationship that is formed there. Mm -hmm. Mark, I think would, would set, you know, certain parameters, you know, and then I would deal with the management people. I never talked to Mark directly about that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, until later I did ask him for a raise at one point <laughs> and he didn't even know what I was talking about, uh, but it worked out in my favor, but <laughs> never hurts to ask, right? But no, you just kind of work it out. I mean, it's a very blue collar, you know, I consider a touring musician to be very blue collar situation, you know, meaning that it's like, it's not real cushy, you know, like you think it might be like right. real, uh, what do you call it? Like uh, glamorous and all that right. stuff, you know, and it's got its moments. Don't get me wrong. But most of the time, man, it's like, you know, you're down in the trenches, man, especially with old Lanny, you know, <laughs> those were like, right. They were hardcore, you know, and you're not staying at the four seasons typically. Eh, you know what, man, I play, I, you know, especially when it was the two of us and it was kind of a one-off every once in a while. And maybe the, maybe the venue or wherever we were playing the festival or whatever it was would be like, you know, kind of hooking us up. I've stayed in some pretty nice places, man. I gotta say, you know what I mean? Nice. But Jen, like if it was a tour, like it was a proper, you know, three month tour, you know what I mean? Is just dirty old bus and you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? they would kind of throw us a bone like you know six weeks in we get like our own room somewhere you know what i mean that's kind of like a okay guys you know <laughs> but i didn't mind that stuff man you know what i mean it's good for i mean you can't mark's gonna do it forever but i don't i don't know if i could do that forever and ever mm -hmm. uh but it was certainly uh i wouldn't trade it for the world man it was really something you know we were we were those tours were were bad they weren't for the faint of heart you know what i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> it really really uh you know makes a grown-up out of you you know jason out of all of the 
work with the Screaming Trees, his solo work, Queens of Stone Age, uh, Mad Season with Lane Staley. Out of all of that work, the song that resonates with me the most, I think, is that duet with Isabel Campbell called Time of the Season. I agree. It's a very special song. You know, uh, the Jeff Fielder thing, it really took me back to like what you said. You had seen him on Anthony Bourdain on the show Parts Unknown. And I I hadn't seen that before. I, I just saw it last night. There's a 10-minute clip on YouTube of Anthony Bourdain on his show having dinner with Mark Lanigan and Jeff Fielder at a restaurant in Ballard called Ocho. Right. I've seen that episode. Yeah. It's pretty cool talk with both of them. Quite funny at times, actually. And I think you get to see a different side of Mark and just the whole vibe of the atmosphere as they talk is pretty special. And they show clips of their performance and just this really cool music that Jeff and Mark do together. And uh, I just think Jeff Fielder was one of the last collaborators with Mark that I think really connected. And I think those two really had a special bond or connection musically. And it really comes through. If you just look up those guys on YouTube, you'll see and you'll hear what I mean. Yeah, it's kind of creepy, too, when you think about the connections and the folks that have died early mm. for whatever reason. Like Anthony Bourdain mm -hmm. committed suicide not too long after that episode. Right. There's a clip of Mark Lanigan singing with Lane Staley of Mad Season on YouTube that you sent me just last night, where you're looking at them performing on stage and you're going, both of these guys are gone. Way, way too young. It is very weird. But yeah, I, I agree. I think that the, you know, when you see stuff like that, when I see Chris Cornell performing, when I see Lane Staley performing, and uh, now Mark Lanigan, when I see him performing, it's just, it's, it's really hard to get into your brain and think, these guys are no longer here. Mm -hmm. And there's that special time that we all had with these people and really got to enjoy their music. I don't think I took it for granted. I, I don't. In a way, I did because I kind of feel like when you're in that moment, it's going to last forever, but you realize it's not. And so when these people pass, I look at it as I got to be there. I got to be in that moment. I got to appreciate these these people's music, their artistry, and I'm just glad I was a part of it because nothing lasts forever. No, so true, Jason. Someone in a Facebook group that I think you and I are both in, mm -hmm. it's a Pacific Northwest music group. Yeah. Someone from that group posted a picture of Eddie Vedder on stage at Benaroya Hall in Seattle last night mm. and described what Eddie said on stage about Mark Lanigan and the loss and mm. said he was just really shaken up by it right. and doesn't do well with, uh, with those types of losses in the music community. This is an important moment in music history where we're losing folks like Mark Lanigan who are arguably irreplaceable. 
they're talents that we're not going to see ever again. And right. that's what makes them so special when they're alive. And that's what makes their loss so devastating when they leave this earth. Absolutely. And not to make any jokes at all, but Eddie Vedder is basically the last, he's kind of the last of that group of that talent that was in Seattle at that time. He's the last guy standing, honestly. And so I just, I hope we can keep him around for a long time. He probably has a million stories he could tell. And what an interview that would be just to hear, you know, his experiences. Yeah. And so I hope, I hope we can have Eddie Vedder for a long time. Yeah. It'd be nice to talk to him as well. Totally. And capture some of those stories for eternity. Yes. Like you say, we don't want to make jokes, but somebody needs to put Eddie Vedder in a protective bubble at this point. Uh, <laughs> we're losing way too many greats in the Pacific Northwest. And like you said, we want to keep Eddie around for as long as possible. Yes, we do. So Jason, I want to thank you for taking the time to go through these interviews and put this together. I think it's a special episode and a nice tribute to Mark Lanigan. But I also want to thank the guests that shared their stories about Mark and their generosity in sharing their stories with us and our listeners allowed us to put together this tribute. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm just glad we got to hear the stories. Me too. They're pretty special. All right, brother. Until next time. Yep. We'll talk again soon. You have a great weekend, Brian. You as well, my friend. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path. <laughs>